I looked and behold, the heavens were opened. A ninth season. <laughs> we believe in the Trinity. We believe in the five solas. We believe in the doctrines of grace. A lot of the time, people are asking the wrong questions. They're not asking the questions like, do I understand God's grace? Do I understand the cross? have our own ministry. It doesn't matter if you work as a CEO or you work at McDonald's or whatever you do, or whether you're quote unquote in ministry, you have a ministry. As we mature, we walk, we, we enjoy our relationship with God in as much as we see his majesty in the blessings that we have just by what Yeshua has done for us, not by what we have done to impress God and then get something from him. So faith, but, so, so salvation by faith. Absolutely. Salvation by faith. I keep zeroing in on these, you know, the big ideas, like what is biblical love? You know, what is, what is grace? Do I have an accurate understanding of God's grace? Our love for Yeshua, but his love, like through us is why we're doing what we're doing. And that's why it's called Messiah Matters. September 28th, 2022. This is Messiah Matters number 402. In the midst of the fall festivals, my name is Caleb Haig. And also in the midst of the fall festivals, I'm Rob Van Hoff. Yes, you are. I almost started with What Up in Shalom. It's been a while since I've used that, eh? What was that, the first two seasons? What Up in Shalom, homie? Good times. I haven't ordered one of our new mugs yet, but I need to. If you yourself would like a new mug, you should go do it. Why do I look so washed out? Hang on just a sec. Let's see if let's see if something needs to change here. Hmm. Um, yeah. All right. Well, we're just gonna leave it because Hey, did oops. Mike say anything about a a MBT3K mug? Possibly. Ooh. Hadn't even MBT thought about 3K. that. Oh yeah, MBT, you said that last week. Did I say that right? right. M- yeah, you did. M- MBT three K. Nice. I might need to get me a uh, license well, plate. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, we should do that. I'd for like sure. to see that. If anybody wants to get a license plate of that, I, I want to see it. 
if anybody wants to get a license plate. That would be a cool, hey, that would be a cool uh, mug design. <laughs> like it's a license plate. Um, what state? Yeah, where's where's Rob when we need, or where's uh, Mike when we need him? Let's see here. Is Mike in the chat room? He's, I don't even think he is. He's probably there. <clears throat> he might be. He usually is. So we'll see. All right. Um, new producers at the bottom of the screen right now. And thank you to our producers and to everyone who supports this show. We do have a lot of supporters as well uh, outside of our producers. And uh, so a great thank you to everyone who supports this show and to our producers who uh, help this uh, help us keep going. Uh, we are very grateful to you. Okay. And if you would like to be a part of this conversation, you should do so. 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. Should we play the tune? Why not? Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253-465-3205. That's right. That's what you call. You can also shoot us an email, chegg.torahresource.com. Chegg, H-E-G-G, at torahresource.com. And... With that in mind, go to Torah Resource. Find all sorts of resources for your festivities during the fall. That's right. You can find prayer books and all sorts of things from a messianic perspective. And uh, most importantly, don't forget to subscribe to this YouTube channel. It helps us, and we love you for it eternally. All right. Caleb, um, yes, eternally. Caleb, are we a thorn in the side of messianic Judaism? Or are we a, oh, rock, I think so. or are we a rock in their sandal? Yes, I think both. I think I think you're the thorn. I'm the rock. <laughs> Bow to your sensei. <laughs> Bow to your sensei. Nice. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, and here's the here's the thing is that, that interestingly enough, if people don't realize this, Rob and I both work for Torah Resource Institute, which is a messianic. I mean, it says on the website somewhere that it's a messianic ministry. We are a thorn in our own side. Well. Yeah, I think that we've uh, we've definitely challenged the notion of the place of rabbinic literature within uh, the study of the Bible, and I think that we've also, I think re more recently, we've become more. We've of a done, I think we've done a, quite a good job of that as well. If I do say, yeah. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing: is that I think that uh, I think that especially uh, more recently, we have become a bit of because we've spoken against. Uh, more modernized Jewish tradition. Man, I mean, my dad uh, recommended this book to me uh, called Changing the Immutable by Mark Shapiro. Uh, yeah, Mark Shapiro. Yeah. Not related to Shapiro. Right. It's, I mean, it is a, uh, it's an eye-opening book just in terms of rabbinic literature and then also rabbinic tradition and how, you know, he he kind of traces how uh, the rabbis have essentially whitewashed out theological things that they don't like. Yeah, yeah. This is really good. So Shapiro book, I think it's the Littman Library of Jewish Studies or something that it's published out of Portland, Oregon, I think is the publisher. But that same author, Shapiro, wrote a smaller little book. I gave it actually to Ariel Berkowitz as a gift on Saul Lieberman. And Saul Lieberman, same story, 20th century, he was a child Talmud prodigy. Okay. Mm. Grew up in, I don't know, Eastern Europe, probably. They recognized him as like a Gaon, like meaning a, that he was a genius, like as a child, he remember, he knew all sorts of rabbinic literature. They right. honored him in Israel as a, as a rabbi and all this kind of stuff. Well, at some point he got a job at 
Jewish Theological Seminary, which is a uh, not reform. It's a conservative uh, in New York, conservative seminary sometime in the middle of the 1900s, like 1950s sure. yeah. or something. And because the conservative movement is light, you know, they're not stringent halakhically like like the Orthodox were. Yeah. They had to go back and re whenever they cite his work, they would they took the name rabbi and gaon out of it like in other words they they would they would continue to use his work but they whitewashed his name isn't that isn't that strange so and this is also mark shapiro and then he developed it more fully i think in this changing the mutable which is where it 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 reflects the, the on the one hand the the love for books in rabbinic learning the love for uh, having big libraries with all sorts of Hebrew commentaries and things like this and Talmudic commentaries. Um, but then the problem is that some of those people who contributed to building that library kind of went stray. They strayed. Right. In, right. According, to, have that. according to the harsh, uh, their, their more intense worldview. And so what they do is like, we're going to still use their books, but we're going to, we're going to like change or whitewash the name and stuff like that. Well, they do. I mean, the thing about Mark Shapiro's book is that he talks about instances where, you know, women are uh, spoken of favorably in terms of like Torah study and that kind of stuff. And that's not allowed, you know, and then he, perhaps the, uh, now I'm not, I'm only 25% through the book, but one of the, uh, one of the really interesting things that he brought up to me was exactly what I had suspected was happening in a lot of the, uh, traditional Jewish prayer book, which is, you know, I'm looking at the traditional Jewish prayer book and I'm saying, okay, like I, I don't, it, it sounds like, it sounds good, right? It, like everything that I'm saying sounds good, but like, what's the history? Is there stuff from, you know, the medieval times and they're actually talking about something in their mind is Kabbalistic, like a, a magic spell or, or something like that. And, and people kind of looked at me sideways, like, what are you talking about? Right. And then I make my own, you know, like my own, I compiled a prayer book that's nothing but scripture because I figured, well, what's the best way to, to make sure I'm praying something that I want to be praying? Well, scripture. Now I read Mark Shapiro's book and it's like, he's talking about specific prayers that we pray all the time and like how they were used against Christians and how they were, you know, against Yeshua and the gematria that's going, that they figured out to like curse the name of Christ and like all this kind of stuff is like, Whoa, <laughs> like, okay. Uh, so anyway, I'm going to, it's, it's inspired me to write an article on, on, uh, that exact subject. So anyway, on, on this I, note. Okay. So sometimes I get emails. I think Caleb, you probably get them too, where, People are are saying, you know, Christianity teaches this. What does Judaism teach about this? Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't even matter what the specific issue is. It's they're coming with the perspective of framing their thought. Christianity teaches X, Y, Z, or traditional Christianity teaches X, Y, Z. Judaism teaches A, B, C. And the idea is, do we... Do I want to think according to the way that the quote Christianity teaches, or do I want to think according to the way quote Judaism teaches? And that's really not helpful because as we were just talking about, when you dive into any of those wor worlds, there's a great diversity 
of what what is being taught within the quote Judaism umbrella or underneath the quote. It's interesting that you say that because for me, like, like when I okay, people will say like even at, at the church that we attend, you know, I'll just say, well, you know, we lean more Baptist. Well, what does that even mean today? You know what I mean? Like we use these titles and I'm all for titles. I actually think title titles are very helpful because they help frame us into a very specific theology, right? I can say right, to right. these- and that, I, get, that creates proper expectations of people who come, right? Right. I, I say to the people at, at the church that we attend, uh, I lean more Baptist. Now to them, instantaneously, what they, what they hear me say is we are not paedo-baptists, but the church that we go to is paedo-baptist. And so- uh, now there's there's a, a split in the church, obviously between those who are not and those who are. But the leadership believes in pedo baptism, and therefore the church practices pedo baptism. And so when I say to people we lean Baptist, what they hear is we are not pedo Baptists. Okay, that's fine. But when we think of like the different layers of Baptist, there are all sorts of different Baptists, right? There, I mean. Everything from Calvinist to Arminian to, you know, like a whole slew, dispensational to non-dispensational, like everywhere in between. And now you got people like myself who I consider myself leaning much more Baptist. When I say that, you know, now all of a sudden you have pronomianism as a theological tab in that too. So even within the titles that we're using, there's just such a broad, like, so... To say, back to your point, to say like, oh, well, what does mainstream Christianity believe about this as opposed to what does Judaism believe about this? Like, well, the even only with, thing you're going to say is that, well, you can't even say this. It used to be, well, Christian Christianity teaches that Jesus is the Christ. Um, Judaism teaches that he's not, <laughs> you know, but we can't even do that anymore because right. we have Messianic Judaism that is trying to say, no, there's a little bit from both that we can bring together. There, there, there is such an interesting comment in the comment section. I, and it's actually three comments. Okay. I'll, 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 it's all from the I'm same person. Here, so Joshua, Joshua says this, and this is such an interesting concept to me. Recently, I was at a conference where a teacher very plainly stated that we should be using a traditional siddur to enrich our faith. But he doesn't get into specifics like which prayer book, which prayers are okay and are not. Is everything in the prayer book based on scripture or not? This is so interesting to me because there, even within Judaism, there it's believed that there are 12 prayer books, one for each tribe. And that each tribe has its own kind of set of prayers to, I mean, this gets in really into Kabbalah, Kabbalah but... I think it's really to try to manipulate God. But then they say, well, well, now that we don't know where the tribes are, what do we do? Well, they, they, w- there's a 13th prayer book, right? And that 13th prayer book is the one anybody can use. And then the question becomes, okay, well, what about all of the Kabbalistic? Th- so for instance, in the traditional prayer book, both in the art scroll and in the Metsudasador, you have this prayer, uh, before me, Uriel, behind me, Raphael, above my, or, uh, to my mm-hmm. right hand, Michael, at my left hand, Gabriel, and above my head, the presence of the Almighty. Where does that come from? That's not scriptural. That's clearly from Kabbalistic belief. So, it, you know, do would this gentleman say that that we should use that prayer to enrich our walk? What about the prayer against the Menim? What about the prayer against the heretics, which was clearly a prayer against Christianity? And then there's a doozy that uh, I'm going to write about in my article. So, I mean, and then what version? What version of the prayer book are you going to use? 
I, I, like a statement like that to me is is very unhelpful as a general statement because there's not enough specifics in any direction. And you know, we could even liken this. I'm sorry to beat. I know I'm beating the the red heifer with a with a stick here, but uh, we could even bring that into Christianity. You know, when you say, "Well, I think that we should uh, be using the Christian prayer book to enrich our walk." Well, which which prayer book are you, gonna, are you going to use? Are you going to use the Catholic prayer book? Are you going to use the Common Book of Prayer? You know, the Baptists. There are Baptists who died to not pray the common book of prayer because they said it was heretical. So as a person who has a rich Baptist history throughout my family, should I pray the, pray the common book of prayer, even though, you know, there are plenty of people associated with the Baptists who died not to? What about all the Catholic undertones of the prayer books? This is one of the reasons that I couldn't get on board with the Christian prayer books is because there's just, just way too much Catholicism that has permeated the prayer books. And so... It's a, it, I mean, it's a really interesting topic, but I, I think that those, those kind of broad statements are really, they shut there. There's one of two things going on and, I, and then I'll stop. I'll, I'll say this, then I'll stop. There's one of two things going on when somebody says that number one, they either don't know what they're talking about in terms of, they don't realize how broad of a statement that is. They think, they think of a monolithic prayer book, right? Like there's one prayer book and we all use it. That's what they think. Right. It's a real primitive kind of view. Because yeah, if you grew exactly. up Jewish in Israel, and, and you know, if you're in the ultra-Orthodox world, you're going to be in such an enclave that, you know, there's other Jewish groups that are like the other. They, they, they might as well, you might as well be Baptist and they're like Mormon, right? Right. They're right. like, but you're praying a, a siddur, you're, you're all, you know. And so that's why there's so many different kinds of, of synagogues and, and yeshivas or study houses, different communities, because it's not a uniform world. It's, it's a human world that is fragmented just like any human world. Agreed. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move on. Let's move to, you know, we we're haven't even started, on. we haven't even started talking about topics that we're supposed to talk about. Yeah. What are we even talking about today? What are we even man? talking about? Can you, so, okay. This is one that Rob has not heard yet. In fact, I pulled it this morning because it came in this morning. This is on. So we, we did a video on what is dispensationalism. And in that video, we suggest our understanding of dispensationalism. Now, our understanding of dispensationalism isn't just plucked out of the air. It it's our telling of, you know, my father grew up a dispensationalist and, and has greatly informed my understanding of what dispensationalism is. However, with the 14,000 views that video has gotten, everybody says, every, every dispensationalist sa says the same thing. You don't know what you're talking about. That's not dispensationalism. Okay, fair enough. Um, I'm pretty sure I have a pretty good understanding of dispensationalism as I've read a lot of dispensationalists who have even made charts to tell us what it is. So uh, on that video, Jersey Cowboy says this, how you reconcile it is by scripture and reconcile it. I I'm not sure what he's talking about, but I think what he's talking about is salvation in, uh, under the old dispensation as opposed to the new dispensation. But he doesn't actually uh, give a specific of what he's talking about. But nonetheless, he says, how you reconcile it is by scripture. The Jews are now saved 
the same way the Gentiles are through, are, are through acceptance of Christ alone. Let's stop just right there. So the reason that this comment is so uh, interesting to me is because I think that it shows a common misunderstanding of many within the church, not everyone, but many within the church. And that is that the Jews, the Jewish people, at some point were saved by works. They were saved by work, doing works of the Torah. And the question that I would have for someone who believes that is, if you believe that, first of all, how is Abraham saved by faith? And he's the model of faith that Paul uses in Galatians. That's number one. But number two, if the Jews were able to be saved by works before the coming of Christ, then why would God need to send Christ? Why would he send his only son to die on the cross when there's another way of salvation? I know one general way they'll say on that, la- that second question, they'll say that the Jews were preventing God's word from going to the Gentiles. So he had to, he had to come down and eliminate that and make a brand new way. Uh, but because Abraham the Gentiles, was a, Ab- because it was the Gentiles couldn't keep all those commandments. Abraham There's was the, a Gentile. It's a twisted. Well, look at Hebrews eleven. Abraham, right, all the way through Moses and all the everybody after Moses that's listed in in Hebrews chapter eleven was righteous by faith, not by works. I agree. So, so, but I still think that, I mean, obviously if there's not two ways of, of salvation and, and I would say that the modern Christian church, generally, if you're talking to a pastor, they're going to tell you that there's not two ways of salvation. There was never two ways of salvation. People were always saved by faith in Christ. So if you listen to the guys like John Piper, Ligonier Ministries, MacArthur, any of these guys are going to tell you, no, 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 there was never, you were never saved by works. You were saved by faith in the coming Christ. This gentleman, Jersey Cowboy, goes on. God's plan was to make one new body out of two peoples. That was always the plan. And this is why we have Gentiles who are seen as covenant members, even when they come out of Egypt. And Caleb, the temple, Ray, Rahab, Ruth, I mean. Right. You know, oh, yeah. And the temple is not a building made by hands, but Christ himself. I would agree with that, but I'd also say it's also it's a building made with hands right? It's both. And the temple is not, uh, sorry, the Jews from long ago under the law served their purpose as a shadow of what was to come. But now the new covenant is in effect. I argue that the new covenant has always been in effect and that Abraham was part of it. The old covenant has been done away with. Define old covenant. You would need to define old covenant. Uh, we still look at it as a historical covenant, but now all mankind, whether Jew or Gentile, must come into Christ. Didn't they always have to come into Christ? So I, yeah, it's, this is this what this is what it reminds me of is like Caleb. You're right now. You're you're the dad, and you're like an expert Lego builder, and like this guy is like a little kid learning to build with Legos, and he's come up to you, and he's like, "Look what I made," but he made like a bridge, but what you're trying to show is, okay, yeah, it looks like a bridge, but when you drive your little Lego car over it, it's going to, it's going to crash and all your little Lego people are going to (laughs) die. So it's like, how do you say, okay. In other words, we know we can kind of, was it deconstruct his email and say, or his note and say, okay, 
I can guarantee I know what scripture he's going to quote at each point behind his statement. You know what I mean? Like, like you could go and almost footnote, like an editor would foot footnote that message with specific Bible verses that you can almost guarantee he has in mind to help fortify his position. But he has failed the bigger the test of the canon as a whole. And and Hebrews 11 is such a great place, but we don't have to just go there all the time. I mean, it's the point of Abraham. Well, Abel, right? I mean, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses, you know, all the way down. King David. King David. Paul makes that point in, in Romans 4. Now, hang on just a second. Let's bring in and another King conversation. David, was he under the law? You know, did he, was, was the new covenant not available to David? <sighs> Good question. Okay, let's bring in Nelda's comment then, since you just uh, brought up Abel. She says, I have a question. Uh, it has to do with Rob's article on pronomian.com. If you haven't seen this article, please go check it out. Uh, Rob wrote a great article um, called God Sees You, which is on pronomian.com right now. You can go check it out, where he mentioned the reason God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's was a matter of the heart, not, uh, not the sacrifice. I was cu- curious if within Judaism, how they explain the reason for God's rejection of Cain's sacrifice. I, I looked through different rabbinic commentaries. Thank you, Nelda, for this. And I, we got your follow-up email on that. I wasn't able to find a lot of like good substantive discussion on Cain's unacceptability. Um, the best I got was more later, like uh, medieval rabbinic commentators. And sometimes it's tough to know whether they're responding to Christian discussion or not. Um, but the idea is if we go and look at the, the ancient Aramaic Targum where God says, you know, why is your countenance fallen, etc. And there's this discussion after the fact between, before he's killed his brother though. Uh, and you look at Rashi, Rashi says the interpretation is according to the Targum. So you look at the Targum, which is the Aramaic. And it says, if you're, if you're, I'm paraphrasing, if your deeds are evil, you're going to be punished for it. If you don't repent from evil deeds, which remarkably matches what first John says. First John says, why did Cain kill his brother? Because his, because his deeds were evil. In other words, Cain, according to the epistle of first John, Cain was already evil before he killed Abel. He didn't kill Abel. And then that was his evil deed that there was already, there was already evil in his heart and that his offering, therefore, if we take even the first John perspective and, and, the Targum, which is later, but agrees that, that, uh, the problem of Cain's unacceptability to God had to do with his, his sin, uh, his sin, his evil in his heart, that he was not, he was being a hypocrite. In other words, he was, he was trying to offer something to God while his heart was far from him. Right. And, and so, um, where was I going with that? If so, both first the epistle of first John and the Targum point us in that same direction. That then you go back and it says that he offered from the fruit of the ground, and it says, um, but Abel offered like the best. And right. there is some dis- discussion that the reason the reason it says the best for Abel is because Cain didn't bring the best, in other words, 
Still a heart issue though, right? Yeah. The scripture is pointing, is reflecting in Abel's offering is a reflection of Abel's heart being upright and, uh, and sincere in his worship. Whereas Cain was fudging. Cain, Cain wasn't really in it. Uh, uh, So, and was, and then he got angry because he was expecting like a two-year-old expecting everybody to, you know, think he was great because he was uh, because of his fake performance, you know, and he gets upset because no, you know, uh, no one uh, played the game. So, and then that resulted in him killing his brother and then denying responsibility of it. One other interesting bit, it, it just on this, looking into it, and I appreciate the question, Nella, because it, 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 it was a good little journey, is there's a place in, in the Mishnah where the rabbis are talking about capital punishment. And they're like, let's say, in the scenario was, let's say there's a capital case. A guy's accused of murder. And, and the Mishnah is saying, and you have someone who says they're a witness. The rabbis say that you have to, and when I say the rabbis say, I'm quoting the Mishnah. The Mishnah, the rabbis of the Mishnah say, you have to pull this witness aside and say, look, like this is a capital case. Like you need to make sure that you want to testify here, because if you testify against innocent blood and you false testify, that blood is now on your hands. Right? And it's now the death penalty. Become, yeah, death according penalty to the Torah, you. it's the death penalty. And, yeah. and but on the other hand, if you're decide if you're gonna if you're afraid, if you do know what happened and you're afraid to testify, the Torah says the sin is on your head if you don't testify. So right. either way, the idea Tell is the like truth. You, yeah, the idea is vet. It's a way of vetting the witnesses, which I think is a good. But one of the things that comes up to play there is this phrase: the voice called the me so Achim, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me. Yeah, and the, the rabbis say, why is it damecha? Why is it bloods? Why is it plural? And and the the mid, midrashic tradition is that plural because it's all the bloods of all the generations that would come from Abel. So in other words, when when Cain killed Abel, he didn't just kill Abel. He killed all the generations, future generations that would come through Abel, denying him of being a a father and a grandfather and a great, great grandfather. And that all that blood, not just the blood of Abel, all that blood is on cable on Cain's head. And that's, that's pretty amazing thought. And, 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 um, um, you know, there is a, there is an element of that in the book of back to the book of Hebrews. Remember it says that, when Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek, it says that Levi was still was in a way in Abraham paying tithe so that when the Levitical priests received tithes from Israel, it's really Melchizedek receiving tithes from Abraham because it's all right, because it's, it's somehow Levi is inside Abraham. So that idea of how a murder is a such a brutal offense. It's not just the blood of the person that is killed. It is all the future bloods that would come from them. And that's true for the wicked as well. When a wicked person is killed, that means all their future offspring is also uh, destroyed. Um, so anyway, I, it, there's so much around that, but nothing specific about the motivation 
of Cain, other than that it's just that he was evil. So I don't know if that touches exactly on what Nelda was looking to get at, but um, it's a great question and it was fun looking into. Love is Bigger just gave us a, a super chat. Now, the last time she gave a super chat, she I tried to play this and I couldn't get it going. So I'm going to try to do it this time. Let's see here. So I'll do one for her and one for me. The first is mine, second is hers. If you want to add glitter to that glue you're sniffing, that's fine. But don't dump your wackadoo all over us. Weights and measures. You've been so- blessed. Okay. <clears throat> so... So hang on just a sec. I've asked hey, we're that. doing okay. a live show today. Yeah, that's because the the uh, the so new... far my that's so far my router is working. Lord, <laughs> Lord, from from my mouth to the Lord's ears, uh, I'm 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 hoping that this continues. Um, okay, let's let's move on. We got a couple of things to talk about here, um, and if it doesn't, then I think I know what else we could do. Okay, uh, your. It says uh, in the comments, he says, I was wondering, actually, this might have been an email. It was so long ago, I don't remember. By the way, we're quite back- backlogged on certain things. I got a lot of different uh, th- uh, emails that have kind of been placed in a folder of, I need to bring this onto the show at some point, but haven't been able to do it yet. And then it's mixed in with a lot of like, I don't know if we're going to talk about this or not kind of a thing. And then also mixed in with now with a lot of Mystery Bible Theater 3000 videos. So trying to weed through all of it is actually quite time consuming. So if you have sent us something, we got an uh, we got a voicemail the other day saying I sent something in and, and I never got a response. And I apologize for that. I sent back an email this morning. Um, but sometimes we don't we decide not to talk about certain things if we don't think it's uh, something that will work for the show other times it just kind of is in a folder waiting so i apologize your says this uh, i was wondering since jesus followed the majority calendar now uh, this is a reference to well maybe it's not but th- certainly we believe this one of one of rob and my beliefs and we've talked about this numerous times on the show is that we see within the within uh, the apostolic scriptures that Yeshua actually comes and he celebrates with the other people in Jerusalem, and it has been argued that the Pharisaic the Pharisaic calendar was off; that it wasn't on in the first century. Now, there's a lot of reasons that we would believe this. They moved specific dates and they put in leap years and all sorts of stuff depending on certain elements. So if the bridges were washed out uh, and people couldn't get to Jerusalem, they would push back the festivals, uh, the the uh, first you know, the Passover festival, they would put in a leap year just so that they could rebuild the bridges. If there wasn't a good lambing season, all sorts of stuff. They would even fudge the, there's evidence that they fudged the uh, sighting of the new moon by a day or two as well. So the point is, is that uh, people have argued, well, the Pharisees weren't on the right calendar. Or they were they were fudging things one way or the other. And our response has been, well, that may be true, but Christ nonetheless shows up at the temple during the festivals. And so it seems apparent that he was celebrating at the same time the other others were. And therefore, he followed the majority calendar. And this, I believe, is a reference to that. If not to that, the person's on the same page as us. I was wondering, since Jesus followed the majority calendar, even if he knows what the actual date should be, what is wrong with people following the majority day of the Sabbath? That is Sunday now. Following that, that then, is Sunday worship, not sinning. I keep the Sabbath, actual, the actual Sabbath, but this thought just came to my mind. Thank you. Okay, so 
I will respond to this first and then I will let Rob jump in and take over. So okay, my cool. response my response to this would be simply that it is the Jewish people, it is the descendants of Jacob that were tasked with keeping the covenants and keeping the law. And uh, they were tasked with this and they are the ones who would set the majority calendar. So when we look at the Jewish people, they have not ever changed to a Sunday Sabbath. They have not ever uh, decided... now. There are caveats to this. We need to obviously talk about the fact that uh, during the uh, during extreme forms of persecution, the Jews actually did shift the Sabbath to Sundays. They would worship on Sundays so that they wouldn't be killed for worshiping on Saturdays. However, as soon as the persecution was lifted, what did they do? They went right back to a Saturday Sabbath. It is the Jewish people that we should look to for the majority calendar. And it is this reason that we would celebrate the Passover, Shavuot, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, and Sukkot on on the dates that the majority of the Jewish people, whether they are believers or not, the majority of the Jewish people celebrate them on because that's what Yeshua did. And so I'm going to follow what Christ did. I'm going to follow what Yeshua did. I'm going to follow them. The Catholic Church is not was never tasked with uh, keeping the covenants for us. However, we also need to quickly say uh, with that comment that for some reason, a reason that I don't know, a reason that I can't understand, God did use the Catholic Church to maintain the apostolic scriptures up to our day, up until at least until the Reformation. And we owe a great sir, a great debt to the Catholic Church for uh, maintaining the scriptures, what, the Wycliffs, the Tyndales, even the 1611, KJV, so on and so forth. So, um, and I don't understand why God did that. I don't understand why God used Luther either, but he did. Rob? Yeah, that's a good, uh, those are all good points. Um, back to the... Uh, to zero in just on the question of did Yeshua use the majority calendar? You talked about the Sabbath a little bit. It, it you know, I I think that it it's just the same Sabbath, right? So I I don't think that's part of the question. Um, so you know, uh, what Yeshua do you mean by rest, that? Wait, wait, Yeshua wait, wait, said, help. "Son of man is Lord of the Sabbath." He rested. On, they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. I, you know, there's all sorts of stuff we can find in the gospels. He says, pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath. Right. Why? So he's talking about, cause that's a, that's a day that's fixed in God's mind. And we don't have any argument in any of the sectarian literature or first century literature that Jews disagreed which day the Sabbath was. There's just no, even the Gentiles know when the Sabbath is because in the Maccabees, they come to try to attack Israel on the Sabbath, knowing that the Jews are, are, probably not going to fight back. Um, so in my view, the Sabbath does not really merit. Well, that's not the way to put it. It's not part of this question. The question has to do with the disputed things that we could anchor into the first century. Pentecost was disputed later in rabbinic literature. The day of atonement was even disputed. So we know that some calendar dates were disputed uh, within the uh, the world of the first century and beyond. And this is not even getting into, well, the counting of the Omer, of course. And then there's other feasts. There's the there's feast of the, the wine, right, that's at Qumran, um, that the Essenes observed, that's not part of the Torah of Moses. 
So there are other kind of calendar things too, but the Sabbath's not really one of those. So if, if we just kind of set the, the Sabbath aside and look at, for example, Pentecost, I think we can see, well, you could ask, is this just a, uh, if Yeshua kept Passover, or, or let's start with Passover first, sorry. Passover, it says in Luke that every year Yeshua took, or Yeshua's parents took them up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So um, you'd have to say, well, okay, but if his parents were doing it and Yeshua was doing it, the law, and, and, and even at the last supper, it says, you know, this was the, the day where all the lambs were being slaughtered. So institutionally there's a rhythm that's already in gear of when Passover is the Pentecost. We can look and see the same thing with uh, like Acts chapter two, you know, when the day of Pentecost arrived, in other words, or Paul, I think in first Corinthians, he says, I'm going to, I'm aiming to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. In other words, there's knowledge of the feast calendar and that it's planned out. Paul knows when it's going to, when Pentecost is going to be, and he's trying to arrange his travel, getting his flights in order on, uh, on the internet, you know, so that he can, get his connection to Jerusalem. So why do I make all this point is because in my view, it's presumed that these were, these were the days that there wasn't dispute. There's no place where Yeshua is saying, okay, even, you know, we talked about this last week, I think Hanukkah in John 10, there's no place where in the apostolic writings where there is a claim against the legitimacy of a certain feast day. Like, this is the wrong day. This is the wrong day. You guys are doing this on the wrong day. It's never that. It's always heart issue over against external works is, is the issue of, of where contention is, which is the prophetic contention, you know? So um, with all, all that being said, bringing that back down around, I to create a new, uh, some sort of new pattern. Okay, we're going to start just meeting on Sundays, let's say to start this new pattern and retain it over generations and keep teaching new generations that the old pattern doesn't apply to you, but this new pattern does. That's that, there's no rationale in the Bible to support that kind of shift. There's no place where there's no precedent in the Tanakh for this kind of shift to a new rhythm a new lit liturgy and especially, you know, polemicizing against the old, except, I mean, you could say in the bad way, like when the Northern kingdom broke off from the Southern and is it Jeroboam set up a, a golden calf in up North in Dan and in Bethel and started and changed the calendar, made a new feast day. Okay. So yeah, the scriptures have precedent in that, but it, it doesn't go well, right? It's not, it's not an exemplary, uh, you know, situation. It's not something we look to and go, oh yeah, I think we should try the same thing. No, it all, it never goes well. So I understand the, the if, if someone keeps their blinders on, can I just keep, can I find big biblical precedents to help them keep their blinders on? Or do those who practice truth care about the full counsel of the word of God and desire to be shaped by it? And to be corrected and to be able to say, look, 
doesn't matter how strong a habit is. It doesn't matter how great a tradition it is within my family. I either care about the things of the kingdom first and foremost, or I don't. And, you know, it's not an easy path to, to get, it's like, you know, tearing out the foundation of your house or tearing out a bunch of stuff that's in, in the structure because it needs to be rebuilt. But that's, that's just the nature of, of what we got to deal with. If you love the truth. So, so my, yeah, I guess to just short answer is there's, there's no justification scripturally to telling a Sunday believe a Sunday person who's like, Oh, this is the new day. And, and it was just done by the authorities. I don't think there's justification to say that, Oh, the Bible supports that. That's, that's the so long, that's the scenic route. That's the scenic route. There is a conversation going on in the chat room. And honestly, I see it as an attempt to hijack the chat room to talk about Calvinism. Um, and I don't really want to talk about Calvinism because that's not what we've talked about at all. However, uh, it has been asked if, uh, if Cain was able to bring the right sacrifice. My response was, of course, Cain could bring the right sacrifice. He could have brought the best. And the response is, well, not if he didn't have a regenerate heart. And that's not, I, so one of the reasons that I'm so hesitant to talk about this is because we've, we've talked about this numerous times. And it seems like a lot of the people that, that, uh, that disagree with us, they just don't want to hear what our stance is. It's okay if you don't agree with it, but it's like a constant beating over and over and over and over again, even though we've stated our, our position. God does not cause man to sin. And God did not choose the state of, the, of, of man's heart when he fell. Man chose to eat the fruit. And man's heart is sinful because of that fall, because of man's choice. God did not do that. It is not God who preordains people to sin. I can't figure that out, and neither can the Baptist Confession of 1689. And so the point here is simply this. Could Cain have brought the right sacrifice? Yes, he had the he had the ability, and he had to to not sin or to sin, because God does not preordain sin. Can I explain that? No, I cannot. But the the question is clearly going to now go to: Do you believe that Cain could have come to Christ or come to God uh, without being regenerate? And the answer is no, he couldn't. The spirit is the one who softens the heart because man's heart is hard towards God. Am I going to try to explain that? No, I'm not going to try to explain that. And so if you can't live with that tension, that's fine. Don't live with that tension. But the, the scriptures clearly do. So uh, I, you know, I, I don't, I like the idea of turning every conversation about whether or not a person can sin or not into a, a question about Calvinism or not. And there's other aspects for the, for the story too. That's not, you know, it's written for, as Paul says, is written for our instruction. Well, what else does it show? It shows that, that what there's nothing hidden that will not be revealed. That's what right. Yeshua says. There's nothing hidden that will not be revealed. So even before, if we accept first John's teaching, which I do, of course, if you're a Bible believer, that he, the murder came out of that. He, the fact that he already was evil, his deeds were already evil. 
the murder was just added to the list. If you accept that, then what we see in the text is there's something hidden between Cain and Abel. The Bible is teaching us. But guess what? It gets revealed. The wicked gets revealed and the righteous, sadly, suffer sometimes, often in the scriptures. That's why Yeshua says the blood from righteous Abel all the way to Zechariah, the, uh, whom you murdered, all that blood. There's something about the nature of sin in the world, the nature of, of evil and then and death, but the vindication of the righteous in the end. And the righteous are those who genuinely love God. But, but God, in his wisdom, again, I can't explain this. God allows wicked and evil to be in the world. And even to his... It works around it. Yeah, to his purpose, even there's the righteous suffer. The prophets, you know, look how they treated Jeremiah. Uh, look at how they treated all the prophets. And ultimately, the you know, they beheaded John the Baptist, who Yeshua says, none greater born among women than him. And he was a priest. He was a Kohen. He was a righteous Kohen. He preached the word of God and people by the spirit were moved to confess their sin and be, and repent. Normally stuff that should happen at the temple was happening out in the wilderness because the temple had become this den of thieves. And, and, uh, but, and then of course, Yeshua, ultimately the ultimate righteous who was what I've cut off. So, the, the big picture is the righteous, like Yeshua says, will shine in the right to shine in the kingdom of their father, like stars and the wicked are going to be, but the wicked have to be exposed and then separated and then punished. And that's, that's all part of the whole story. And it's mind blowing. I don't understand, you know, I mean, I don't understand why God, you know, why it's this way, but this is the teaching of the scriptures. Okay, let's move on. Um, I, and this is an interesting one. And the reason why this is an interesting one is because I have a, a belief on this, but I don't know if I have been able to work out the puzzle. I'll, t- I'll tell you what I mean. So Brandon writes in, he says, do you believe there are cases for divorce other than what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 5.32? And he quotes the verse. Actually, this email was quite long. He actually went through a whole uh, argument on all of the different passages. Well, not all of them, but most of the key passages about divorce throughout the, the uh, apostolic scripture. So Brandon, uh, do, do you believe that there's other cases of divorce other than Matthew 5.32? He quotes it and uh, he quotes, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's, uh, so first, do I believe that there are other reasons except for unchastity for divorce? Yes, I do. Um, I'll give you an example. I think that a, uh, a, a man who beats his wife uh, has broken the covenant and uh, therefore the woman is free to leave. And somebody's going to say, well, what about Matthew 532? My response to that is, I'm not exactly sure. That's, that's my best answer. However, I do have some ideas. So for instance, um, 
I think that Yeshua is addressing men here. And I think, uh, especially in the time we're seeing that men, there's stories of this within rabbinical literature as well. Basically, if your wife burnt the toast and you didn't like her, you would divorce her because she burnt the toast. And, uh, the retribution or the, uh, the response for a woman to be able to leave her husband was not quite the same in the first century. However, it did happen. Um, but I think that, so for instance, if a woman is getting beat by her husband, clearly the, the covenant is being broken at this point, right? And so in my mind, the woman has the ability to love, leave the, the husband. In the first century, this was not the case. I, I don't believe that this was even a, uh, a situation that would have occurred. You didn't have a woman who would beat a husband. Now, in our day, that, that's not the case. We do have women who do beat men, right? But in the first century, if a woman did that, uh, that it wouldn't have, like, I mean, I don't know how else to sell it. Say it, it just was not a woman-friendly society. If a woman did that to a man, there was going to be severe consequence, right? So uh, the notion that a man would have to leave his wife because she was beating him is, I don't think even in the it's just not part of society as it is in in our day and even in right. our day it's it's very unheard of i mean it happens don't get me wrong i'm not trying to i i don't want anybody to think that i'm downplaying the fact that there are women who beat men that I, i'm not downplaying that however it is much less common i think we can all agree that it's much less common than men who beat their wives so um outside of that are there other reasons for divorce i think that there may be other reasons for divorce on a case by case basis but once again it would go back to uh the covenant i think that th what is being talked about here is men who want to leave their wives simply because you know they're finding reasons to leave their wife just because so you can write it a, a writ of divorce as much as you want much like our modern day um and i think that christ is saying no you're not allowed to do that Look, if you if you divorce a woman and, and she she's been a faithful and she's been a good wife and you just divorce her, you're making her commit adultery. That's that's where I'm coming from. Um, however, admittedly, I don't believe that I can argue that substantially uh, as of yet. However, I'm working on it, Rob. Yeah, this is good. I mean, one I like your approach. You know, I'll say, well, I'm not sure how, but my gut just tells me. That, God, that Yeshua is not going to sit there and tell a woman, yeah, it doesn't matter. You need to go back and take, you know, take the lips. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, how do we reconcile this? Well, I like your approach. And another approach is to say, well, what are the examples of marriage in the gospels? Well, one is Yeshua and the Samaritan woman. And he's like, look, yeah, you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not, not even your husband. Okay. So the point is it's, he's not saying, yeah, you know, you were beat up five different, you know, no, it's like there's problems with humans learning to be together, you know, learning to relate with one another. And then when times get tough, I'm out of here. Right. I, this I, I'm out of here. Or that's one example that probably seems to best be the issue with the Samaritan woman. It's like, look, there's there's something deeper here. Like if you're just going from marriage to marriage. Right. There's there's another problem here. Uh, you're not even understanding what it means to be a godly human. So, so, so there's other fish to fry in that situation. Um, and it could be in, in our day and age, we look, okay, tra trauma from youth, maybe, you know, sadly in our situation to, in our world today and beyond, we have, you know, women and even men who were abused horribly, sometimes sexually as horrifically as children, as young, you know, teenagers, yes, whatever. Yeah. And that damages, there's just 
damage there that goes on for the rest of life. And that the, the damage is the psyche, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it, yeah. And, yeah. And, and how to relate and who to trust and who am I, who's safe and who's not, what do I need to do to protect myself? And that is, uh, that's just a heartbreaking reality. And it could be that the Samaritan woman was in that kind of thing. We don't know, but it's different than the one. Why does John the Baptist was imprisoned for calling out, right? Calling out a situation. It's not lawful for you to be married to her because yeah. you're still you're still married. Loses okay, his life so, for it. Exactly. So it seems that there, like Caleb was saying, there were situations where people were like, "Oh, I, I'm," and and it could be for economic advantage. It could be for lust. It could be for, you know what? The wife I have right now, I just, you know what? Holding me back. She's holding me back, you know, and she's a pain. So I'm going to find some, she burnt the toast or whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to find some easy off so that I can marry this other person. And it's going to, my life is, you know, it's the grass is always greener. My wife is going to be better. I'll, I'll do a business agreement with this other lady's dad, move up in the world. I'll have more influence, more increase my wealth. Or it could be, you know, there could be a lustful kind of fleshy motivation. I think that's what we need to think of as the background for what Yeshua is talking about here, not where a husband is physically beating his wife. And here's why I think, because communities were in our day and age, part of that is the secrecy. The reason that's allowed, there can be a couple that goes to church for 20 years and nobody knows that she's being beaten by him. But they go to church and they put on their smiley faces and he's probably even a deacon, Right. With this kind of stuff, I'm sure we could find hundreds of examples of this. Why? Well, because now in our day and age, it's easy for people to have such an insulated private home life that is out of view. In the first century, you can't have that. Your 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 house is right next door to another people, and and I don't think that your typical Jewish communities in the land of Israel. I think that men who even thought that they were going to hit their wife would think twice that the neighbor guys are going to come and they're going to, they're not there. There's more of that village kind of protection mechanism where people aren't behaving in that way. Now, to be fair, in one of Paul's epistles, he says, you know, make sure, you know, husband of one man, not a striker. What does he mean by that? Not someone who easily lashes out um, and would even hit a woman possibly, but, we're talking about probably someone who maybe drinks too much and gets rambunctious. And, and, um, but even then I think the community leadership would come together. If, if there was a, a big tussle between a husband and a wife, they would try the first aim is to look, you guys are married. You guys love each other. We need to work this out and we need to take the husband aside and say, look, dude, you, you know, you're not doing this anymore. And we're going to check in. We're going to watch you. We're going to shepherd you and make sure. And the same with the wife, you know, but if, if, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you, Caleb, that, that I think that we need to understand the Matthew five passage very specifically with relating, relating to this, what we can surmise from the other scriptures and what we know generally about the first century and to differentiate that from 
situations of, of abuse. And at, at, when I say abuse, I mean like the where there's a d- demonstrable pattern and the, the woman's safety, her life is at risk and the life of her children, right? Um, so I, I, I think th- I, I think that uh, I think that uh, the, Scott in the chat room is right. The idea that uh, and we see this a lot today. It's per- pervasive in our in our communities today, in our society today, which is that uh, of people don't take a vow seriously. And I think that uh, this is essentially what the teaching that this teaching in Matthew five is talking about. Like you, t- you're, you're saying a vow, you're committing to someone, but then you're just willing to kind of throw it out at, at any, for anything. And that's not how vows work. And so, you know, my kids, we were talking about this yesterday, you know, uh, we're in a, we're in an extremely liberal state. And, uh, even though my kids are homeschooled and, and, uh, we try our, you know, we go to a very conservative, uh, church and, and we're grateful for, for that. And they have very conservative Bible believing Christian friends. You know, my kids are still faced with, you know, kids who are, have, who have trans parents that, I mean, that's something that we've had to address very recently and, uh, kids their own age wearing fingernail polish and, and dresses that are, you know, boys. Um, and then, uh, something that might not seem as, uh, as in your face is people who are having children and they're not married and then they, they break up. And, you know, I was telling my son yesterday, this is one of the reasons that God is, is so specific about us being married and how we're supposed to do that and why we're supposed to take marriage so, so seriously. Because once you get married, it's for life, man. You know, you can't have children and then just decide, hey, I'm out. It doesn't work hey. like that. You know, a <clears throat> vow is for life. And, and I think that when we teach our, our children that we shouldn't say unless now, certainly there is the unless places, right? There is the, the, you know, what if a spouse cheats and all these kind of things. But I think that from the, from the, uh, from a young age, we should understand that our vows are, should be taken very seriously and that marriage is a lifelong commitment. And we shouldn't think, well, it's a lifelong commitment, but in the back of my mind, I can probably get out of it if. You know, those aren't, that's not what we're supposed to do. And I think that's exactly what Christ is teaching us here in this passage is that our, um, our vows need to be taken seriously. And the vow of marriage is a lifelong commitment. And it's not something that we get out of. It's not something that just because you're not getting along with the person or you can't reconcile a disagreement or whatever it may be, or you like, you know, you like your dog more than you like your wife. That's a story we heard on the news yesterday. Anyway, uh, you know, these aren't reasons to, to get divorced. So I think it's all, all uh, good things to talk about and think about. And I, I thank you, Brandon, for uh, writing it in. It's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a, a very touchy subject, especially in our day and age, because uh, our society has uh, made divorce so common. And this has uh, permeated the church, right? Uh, within the church, divorce is a very common thing. And um, I, I don't think that we should shun people who have had divorces, obviously. I think that we need to work with each individual situation as they come along. And a lot of the time, the people who have had divorce uh, in their life are, are very hurt and, and uh, need to be shown love and pushed in the right direction. Um, but it is something that is certainly affecting the church today. All right. Uh, well, 
Thank you so much to everyone who wrote in and please write in more. It's, uh, it's really good to have all these, uh, different things to talk about and to have these, uh, emails to wade through and these, in these voice messages to wade through because it actually does give us a lot to talk about. So you can, you can be a part of this conversation, 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. Also shoot us an email, cheg at torahresource.com. It's C-H-E-G-G at torahresource.com. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing that is to glorify our great god and savior yeshua the messiah why you know why because yeshua and because messiah matters